When you hear these words, I am not ashamed, there by Paul in Romans chapter 1, it is an emphatic statement that I want us to, boy, let it influence us. I mean, the weather can influence us, can it? Bring us depressed. Uh, a bill you didn't know that you had coming in the post would depress you. But instead of being influenced by all the bad things, let's be influenced by the gospel this morning. This entire year, we're going to focus on the gospel, especially not being ashamed of it. You see, as, as a pastor, my job is to try to motivate people to do right, to follow Jesus, to preach the Bible, and to win souls. That's my job. And it takes a lot of work, but that's the work of the gospel. But I have a big enemy that I know that I am facing right now in this room when I talk about preaching the gospel, when I talk about living the gospel, when I talk about being a witness, when I talk about being more than a Christian on Sunday inside a building. Because that's not Christianity. Christianity is the moment you leave this door and you're at the shop or you're at work or you're at school or you're in home, there is something that stops us from living the gospel and that is embarrassment. A lot of Christians are put off from speaking up, from shining. The Bible says your light's in a dark world. We're put off from testifying giving our own testimony, we, we are afraid to warn people of coming judgment because we're so self-conscious. We're concerned about our image. A lot of Christians are so worried about to be, they, they're so concerned about having to be absolutely, perfectly correct about everything they say. I've had it happen. I'll be talking, I'll be saying, and somebody instantly pull up their phone and check Wikipedia to see if I'm right. And I can't live that way. I'm not part of the genuine uh, generation Z, X, Y, Z, all the way through, that, that always has to have everything exact before they can say something. Now, I learned a long time ago that you don't have to be perfect. You just need to have a heart that's right. And people can tell if you're perfect or if your heart is right. Just listen, give the gospel with your heart. You may fumble through it, but give the gospel. What I find is that Christians are embarrassed about putting Jesus first. They're, they're, they barely come to church. They're embarrassed of singing on Sunday morning. My heart grieves, if I can be honest with you, that on Sunday morning, we're not raising the roof because it testifies we're embarrassed. I don't care if you can't sing out of a bucket. Sing because God wants to hear you sing, amen? It's very hard to get Christians to say amen. Never nearly impossible to get Christians to worry about handing out a gospel tract to somebody or to ask the question, do they know where they're going when they die? Embarrassment has a grip on Christians. Now here in uh, chapter 1, we'll start there in verse 7, Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, we'll do a little bit of a review and then kick into high gear and go through just three verses, but a lot of truth. Romans chapter 1, and in verse 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul is, is, is wishing he could travel to Rome. And I want you to see this, verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So Paul is, is writing to, to Rome, and Rome was an empire that was just vast. You know, it didn't encompass all of China and Africa and all that stuff. I understand northern Africa was conquered, but it went all the way from Babylon up to Scotland. This was a vast empire, and the center of that was a city of a million people. At the time that Rome had a million, London had 500. That is Rome. And Paul says, Paul is, he hears about them, and he's thankful to hear that there are Christians there. He's glad that there were some people who were saved up in Rome, that they were there. You know, Christianity is not just huddling around the headquarters. They didn't just stay in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when the Christians did sort of just hang around Jerusalem, God sent Paul in there when he was Saul of Tarsus and scattered them. Because he wants us everywhere. He wants the gospel everywhere. He wants churches everywhere. And Paul says, I've learned that there are Christians even in the center of the Roman Empire in Rome. He's thankful that their faith was, was spoken of. Their faith, not his faith, but their faith was spoken of throughout the world. He was grateful, thankful to hear about the Christians. He wanted to see them. Wanted to travel there. Yearn to, to meet up with them. Wanted to establish them. Look there in, in um, uh, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He's praying for people he's never met. Making a request, I'm asking God if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Wow. For I long to see you, that it may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be. And the word is there, established. Now, that means that he wanted to help them because there were a lot of, there are always cults, there are always pressures, there's always influences, and Paul wanted to go and make sure they were anchored in sola scriptura, only the Bible. Their faith was only in Christ. That they, were, they knew what they knew because of the absolute truths of what saith the scripture. Paul was not going to wait for Peter to do it. As a matter of fact, Paul was, if anybody established and really got the church at Rome strong, it was not Peter, it was Paul. Paul wanted to make them anchored because storms were coming. If you know anything about Roman history, times were kind of rough in the 50s and 60s, not, not 1950s or 60s, but the year 50s and 60s, back 2,000 years ago. Times were rough in, 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 in Rome if you were a Christian because everybody was pagan, everybody worshipped the emperor, and here you come along and says, no, Jesus is Lord. So it's kind of rough, but nothing like it was going to become over the next nine emperors. They would torture, and they would, they, you heard about the Colosseum, that the, the throwing of Christians to the lions was a daily thing, and people gathered to watch it. That was coming up, and Paul said, I want to anchor you so that no matter what comes, you don't lose heart you don't lose faith but he was more than just concerned about the christians he was concerned about souls look in verse 13 he says now i would not have you to be ignorant brethren that oftentimes i purposed to come unto you but was let hitherto i was hindered 
that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. What was his fruit? Everywhere he went, he saw souls saved and churches started. He said, I kind of want to do that with you as well because he never cared about finances. He didn't come and say, I'm going to make a lot of money off of you. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to become super popular. No, no, he was concerned about one thing, and that was about souls. Now, if you look at a crowd of people and you see customers, you're in the wrong business. Christianity is not about clients. It's not about opportunities to get, join into multi-level marketing and into, um, uh, uh, you know, come into my office and let's do a deal and let me, let, me, let me start you on this program. Christianity is, do you know where you're going when you die? I don't care if, if I ever see you again, I want to make sure your soul is right with God. That's all Paul was burdened about, souls. But before he could get there, before he could get to Rome, he wrote this letter, this epistle, this book, to the, uh, book in the Bible called The Letter to the Romans, just in case he didn't get there. And what a book it is. As I said last week, it is the greatest book in the New Testament. Even more, even more amazing, the book of Revelation. I love Revelation. I love Matthew. <clears throat> Every book's amazing. But Romans is the crown jewel. He then says three statements. I call them his three I am's. And let's read verse 14, 15, and 16. And we're going to go through and talk about them. Verse 14, I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So you ought to circle those words, I am debtor, because that's his first I am. Verse 15, so much as, in, as is in me, sorry, as in me is, I am ready. Here's your second phrase. I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. And then verse 16, for I am not ashamed, there's our third I am, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek I'll say this again, I find a lot of Christians don't know who they are. They can't say, I, I, they can't say much about, I know who I am in Christ. And they definitely don't know what they should be doing with their lives. If I asked you, what is the will of God for your life? I bet many in this room would say, I have no idea. Well, these things that we're about to look at are are three things that every Christian needs to be and to do in this generation, whether we want to or not. This is the Christian life. So he starts off verse 14. Let's look at that verse again. I am debtor. Think of those words. Now, before you're saved, you owe somebody. You've done enough wrong to send you to hell forever because you've broken laws, you've broken rules, you've broken commandments. You've done things that not even your mother knows about. They're called sin. And if somebody were to expose you, that's what happens when they expose these movie stars, when they expose these politicians. It's supposed to ruin their career. It never does. But when you're exposed and you stand before God, you realize how much in debt you are and how impossible it is to make up for all of that sin. And then came Jesus. And somebody paid for every one of your sins. So Paul is no longer in debt to God for his sin. That's been paid for. He's been made free. The Bible says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You're truly, you're truly free. 
And if that's true, then what is my debt? Ah, Paul knows he owes something different. Look there in verse 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the Barians, both to the wise and the unwise, so that as much as in me is, I am ready to, what's his debt? To preach the gospel. Um, he has an obligation to live a life that preaches the gospel of Christ. Like a guard, as I said last week, is, is obligated to protect and to serve. That's his job. A doctor is obligated. He may not feel like it, but he's supposed to save life, not take it. Amen. Can you imagine a doctor on a bad hair day? Oh, this one would be fun to poison. <laughs> no, he's obligated. He or she has to take all the steps to make sure they protect life. That's their obligation. Well, a Christian is obligated to open their mouth and to tell people about how to be born again. How to be saved from hell and from sin. How to trust a God they cannot see. How to love him and how to follow him consistently. Let me give you an example. If, if, if um, somebody's in danger, their car is on fire on the side of the road, and you pull over and you jump out, and you risk your life, and you pull the door open, and you, you, you rip the, uh, the seatbelt off, and you pull them out of the car, and you save them, you know what they're going to feel? Like they owe you. You, you saved my life. I owe you my life. That's a normal thing. You feel that when somebody does something really great for you, you feel that you owe them something. That's normal. I'll give you another example. Somebody all of a sudden gets suddenly very wealthy. They come into 25 million euros. I don't know. You know what we expect? We believe they have an obligation to be responsible with their money, don't we? That's what we feel. We see somebody all of a sudden come into a lot of wealth and we go, well, what are you going to do with it? Oh, I'm going to buy 14 villas all over the world and I'll just go from week to week, from house to house. I'll just let, and you're looking at it and go, what a waste. But if that person uses their money to help to make the world a better place, all of a sudden we go, now that's the right job. Now you say, where'd you get that from? The Bible. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy. Hold your place here. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. This is my job. Again, Paul is talking to a preacher named Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, just before, uh, just before Hebrews. 6, 17. <clears throat> Charge them. Preach at them. Make them responsible that are rich in this world. Well, I don't care whether you're Elon Musk or Bill Gates or... Uh, George Soros, or all these people who use their money to manipulate the world and, 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 and do their own thing. This is what the Bible says. Charge them, talking to Christians that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, meaning that money always comes and goes, but trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things, yes, to enjoy. But he says, charge them, verse 18, that they do what? Make sure you got all that money, do good with it. That they, that, be, that they become rich in good works. If you've got a private jet, wouldn't you use it to help somebody get out of a bad situation and get somewhere else and get help? Charge them that are rich that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to dispute, distribute, willing to communicate. Communicate there, just a simple word. It means meet people's needs. We expect that. 
we have, if somebody's got a lot of money, they have an obligation to use it wisely. Well, guess what? Paul uh, was, a, was a, uh, a Jew who owed the gospel to everyone. Look in verse 14 again, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. 114 says, I am debtor, both to the Greeks, those were the intelligent, the, 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 um, they, they, they spoke the civilized language of Greek, and to the barbarians, those are the foreigners, people who lived differently, talked differently, looked differently, both to the wise, oh, those were the professors, and to the unwise, those were the ignorant. Paul, who was a Jew, owed the gospel to absolutely everyone, not only his own people, but to the Greeks as well, to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. No one was to be overlooked and no one should be today. I am ashamed how Christians, even myself, often divide lost people into two groups. I will look at somebody and I'll make a decision. They're worthy of me stopping and risking rejection and giving them the gospel. I will look at somebody and I'll, I'm just being honest with you because this is a human nature that looks at different people and go, no, I won't talk to them. I won't waste my time with them. I, I'm too busy for them. Oh, I'll talk to them. We divide people into those that are worthy of our time and of a gospel track and of inviting to church. And then there are those who are unworthy. I'm sure, I hope that you believe your family is worthy given the gospel too. I hope you believe that your parents and your children are worthy, your friends and people that, that, that like you. I hope you realize they are a soul that needs the gospel. But what about those people who you think naturally are unworthy? They're different, they're strange, they're uninteresting, or they're uninterested in you. They're even the enemy of the gospel. Well, evidently, huh, I guess those should be ignored, right? We shouldn't waste our time on them. Since they're not interested, they're not worthy. No, we cannot see anybody ever as unworthy hearing the gospel. No one should ever think that, that, that somebody doesn't deserve the privilege of knowing that there's a way to be saved from their sin. No matter how they're living, no matter how wrongly they may treat us. Well, I'm never talking to you again. I had a, I had a, a pastor. He's still a friend of mine. But when we went door knocking one time in New Jersey, in a very rough part of town, okay, and uh, knocking on the door, he would try to start to give him the gospel. They slammed the door on his face. And he said, let's go to the next one. I said, amen, but let me write down that name. I want to try and do that house again. He said, don't waste your time. Now, I was not very long saved. I wasn't very smart. I kind of just put my pad and pencil away, and I followed him along. And I thought, okay, I guess that'll be a waste of my time ever going back to that same house. But that's a wrong attitude, wouldn't you agree? I know that I can't only deal with somebody who doesn't want the gospel. But I should never say, you know what? It'd be fun to win that person to Christ. That should be my challenge. You ought to pick on the hardest person at work that's the most mocking, the most embarrassing to be around and say, I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand tracts to and I'm going to invite until they get saved. This attitude of, 
well, there are people who are worthy and people who are unworthy. I'm glad God didn't see us that way. Romans 10, 13 says this. Don't go there. Well, you can. You're in Romans 1. Go to Romans 10, verse 13. Romans 10, 13 says this. For whosoever, what does that include? Whosoever is anybody. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the problem. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, you can't get saved until you believe. And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? They haven't heard. And how shall they hear without, put your name in there, without Craig Ledbetter, without a preacher. Now don't make it so that, well, pastor, you're the preacher. No, no, no. Preacher means a declarer, a speaker, somebody who tells the gospel. Doesn't matter if they want to hear it or not. We owe it to the lost to keep preaching, to keep carrying, carrying, to keep loving lost people enough to tell them the truth over and over and over until they get saved. The first time I came to church and I sat two-thirds of the way back, kind of hiding in the middle of, of, a, of a long pew there. I didn't have a Bible. The first time I heard the gospel as the pastor preached went right over my head. And the pastor could have said, that guy's not going to get saved. Not going to waste my time with him. But I was invited back. So you want to come back? Did you understand what the pastor said? And I was honest. I said, oh, sure. <laughs> I was dishonest. But I came back. Second week, phew, right over my head. All of a sudden, I've got a Bible in my hand now. And I'm able to follow along. But it's not making any sense to me. The pastor could have said, he's come twice, still hasn't got saved. He's not going to get saved. So the woman who actually invited me to church came up to me and says, what are you doing after church? I said, uh, going home. She said, no, you're not. You're coming to our house. And I went over to she and her husband's house. And wow, we had Mexican food out the wazoo. Man, sat there all afternoon talking about the Bible. It was still going over my head. But I wanted, I was made hungry for truth and for what Jesus said. Went back the third time. I'm sure the pastor was surprised. Well, he's back. And I still didn't get saved. Fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. I went eight weeks in a row. And you know what happened on the eighth week? I went on Sunday morning, and I found out there was a Sunday night service. So I came Sunday night, and the pastor preached, and the penny dropped. And on the 15th of June, 1980, I asked Jesus to save me. I could have been looked at and thought of, he's not interested. I wasn't looking for God. A woman came looking and handed me the gospel and told me God was looking for me. Invited me out to church and kept inviting me, kept telling me, come on back, come on back, time after time. So that two months later, the penny drops and I go, all right, you win, Jesus. I'm lost. Please save a wretch like me. Let me tell you, you cannot write anybody off as long as they're still breathing. You got to keep working on them. Paul says, I am debtor. Secondly, verse 15, he says, so much as in me is, I am, secondly, ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. He was ready with every fiber in his being. You ever seen these, these guys and the girls when they, they get on the starting line of a racetrack and they get down to position and they put their feet in that, that um, there's a board there where they can 
list, uh, launch themselves off into that race, when they get into that position, every fiber in their being, their breath is measured. And they are waiting for the sound of that gun and then pow! And in that same way, Paul is using the same word saying, I am ready to go. I'm willing. You could, that person that's on the racetrack is not being coaxed and come on, you can do it. Oh, come on. Oh, just put a little effort out. No, they are already there. They are ready to go. They are yielded to this race. They're excited about it. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, it says of the, all the armor of God that we've been given to fight the spiritual war, there's one that's very unique. It says our feet need to be shod. It's an old word for shoed. We need to have our feet already with shoes on. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to be ready to get out and to go. Become in vogue these days where when you go into people's homes, you take your shoes off, right? That's a culture all over the world that's finally hitting Ireland. But in a moment, you have to run and go get those shoes on and go close the windows in your car if you left them open when it starts to rain. You've got to get your shoes on. A lot of Christians have no idea where their shoes are, so to speak. You understand what I'm saying? Went right over your head, didn't I? You're not ready to preach. You're not ready to witness. You're not ready to give your testimony. You're not ready to talk about the greatest story ever told. Paul was ready. He was prepared. Do you know, when I say prepared, that means that, yes, he was a student of the Bible, but did you know all the things in his life up until the time he's writing in the book of Romans, he says, God has been preparing me. And I don't care how young you are or how old. That was kind of fun. Or how old you are, you right today have been prepared for today and tomorrow and the next day. Are you ready for what God has for you? If you met somebody, if the Holy Spirit spoke to you and says, give them a gospel track, and all of a sudden you find out they're a biochemical engineer, it doesn't matter what their intelligence level is. Are you ready to give them the gospel? See, Paul faced rejection. He dealt with poverty in his own life, hardships, imprisonments. All of that helped him prepare for what was ahead in Rome. And it was going to be rough. Paul, Rome was where he was going to die. He was prepared for whatever God's will was. He was prepared and ready to work. And boy, does the gospel take work. He was ready to do the will of God. Now he's asking, he says, Lord, I hope it's your will for me to go to Rome. And it is. But he says, I'm ready to do your will. And I'm ready to suffer. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 21. I'll show you his readiness. Acts chapter 21, verse 13. Verse 12 says, And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought, begged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am, what's the words? There's his words, I am ready not to be bound only, and he was, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was ready to suffer. Now, did he die in Jerusalem? Nope, but he's ready to. And he does die in, in, in Rome, but all the way he says, whatever it costs, 
I'm willing to do because of Jesus. You know, a boxer on the day that, of his fight, do you know what he does? He stands up there in front of the TV and he stands up there in front of the crowds and he says, I'm ready. Oh, I've been training. I'm, I'm ready. I can I'll face my opponent. Think about what he's about to face. About 125 punches to the face over the next 30 minutes to an hour. That's what he's ready for. How about a soldier on the day of battle? Needs to be ready for what faces him on the other side of a hill. So must a Christian be ready to do the will of God no matter the cost. What have you put up with trying to do the will of God? The reason why you're bitter is because you weren't ready for it. If you've been through some bitter times and some hard times, that was God preparing you for what's coming next. I'm ready, Paul said. Third, I'm not ashamed. Now, verse 16, back there in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It implies that it is embarrassing. It implies that people do find shame in it. But watch this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed. To be ashamed means to be worried about how other people see you and how they, what they think of you. Isn't that what everybody struggles with now? Oh, I, my Twitter account, I lost 2,000 followers. People worry about their image. They worry about what people think of them. And Paul says, <laughs> not me. You know, if Paul came in this room, he'd be bent over. He'd be in his 50s. He'd look like he was 80. Hard to His eyesight was very poor. His speech, he says, was contemptible. It was hard to understand him. He was rude, it says. He offended people. You'd say, why, this is the Apostle Paul? Yes. You see, Paul wasn't worried about, I'll wear the latest fashion and I'll have my hair blown back by a, by a stylist. I'll have rings on every finger. I'll drive a, a, a top-end Lamborghini. He wasn't worried about any of that. He wore his body out. That was how come he was as he was. He wore his body out trying to preach the gospel to everyone he met. Paul says, I bear in my body the scars of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean? Not stigmatas. He says, every scar I got, I got trying to preach to the honor of the Lord Jesus, and I wear it with pride. Don't be, don't, Paul says, I'm not worried about what people think of me. And the moment you get to that place, it's the moment you'll get free. Because every day you're worried about, oh, my hair, oh, my face, oh, oh my, my, um, uh, you know, my, my car. I'm embarrassed of my car that I have to drive, or I'm embarrassed of the church I have to go to. I'm embarrassed of my family. Paul says, I'm not, afraid, I'm not embarrassed. To be ashamed means to be unconfident in what you believe. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Bible. I'm not ashamed. If somebody is, it's because they're not confident in it. If you are ashamed, you'll be hesitant. You'll be confused constantly. Yet Paul says he was unashamed of the gospel. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're in Romans. Go to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17. 
For Christ sent me not to baptize. You know what would, would change our church if we wanted to get a lot of people coming to our church? Just really emphasize baptism. Come and get baptized. Oh, we have a special holy water-filled baptismal font straight from the Jordan River, blessed by His holiness, so-and-so. Oh, that elevates a church, doesn't it? Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words. I'm sure some of you say, I wish he would talk nice. <laughs> I wish he would talk fast and get it over with. No, Paul says, I preach the gospel not with wise words, with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect, lest I remove the power of the cross. For the preaching of the cross is them that perish. It's what? It's craziness. It's foolishness. But to us which are saved, what is it? It is the power of God unto salvation. Look down to verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, they knew not God. You can't discover God through a telescope or a microscope. It pleased God how to reveal himself by the foolishness of preaching, by what you see and what you gather to hear this morning, but not just now. You see, you think of me as fulfilling the job of preaching. Yes, Gavin? You think pastor's up there being a fool preaching. <laughs> but that's not all he's saying. He's saying the foolishness of preaching when you're talking to somebody, giving them the gospel over a cup of coffee at BB's. That is the foolishness of preaching that all of us need to be involved in. Keep going. Um, uh, but by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews, oh, they require a sign. They want a miracle. And the Greeks, they seek after wise things. They want things to make sense. But what do we do? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, oh, it's a stumbling block. It makes them trip up. And under the Greeks, it is foolishness. But under them which are called, saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when you give the gospel, when, when somebody invites you, when, when you invite somebody to church, you kind of you kinda know, oh, and all they're going to get is preaching and a cup of tea. But don't be embarrassed. In some churches, I mean, wow, you get entertained, amen? I actually was in a church a long time ago when my mom was looking for a church. I was not saved. I was about 13 years old. We went into the teen group and went. There was a bunch of teens, and a guy picked up a guitar and began to sing, and there began to sing a song. I kind of hesitate singing it for you because you'll all think of it from now on, but it was a Beatles song. And they changed the words and they said this. He loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now some of you are looking really sad now because that is an abomination. But that was worship to them. And it was a joke to me. <laughs> they were trying to entertain a crowd that was enamored by the Beatles when what I needed to hear at 13 years old was that I was lost and I was without hope and I needed a Savior and Jesus is the only one. That's what I needed to hear. It may be foolish, but boy, it's right. Everything Paul put up with since getting saved on that road to Damascus was worth every soul that got saved. Think about it. That Philippian jailer who beat Paul and shoved him into that darkest hole in the prison there and slammed the door on him. Paul went to that jail and put up with it and sang in there. Why? Because... He knew somebody was going to hear the gospel as he sang it and preached it. And that jailer got saved. And Paul said, I guess it was worth it going to jail. 
276 criminals on a boat sinking in the middle of the Mediterranean. Paul on that boat, he said, we're all going to be shipwrecked. But he says this, it's worth it if those 276 hear the gospel, and they do. And many of them get saved. The, the um, governor of the island gets saved. Paul can look back on that shipwreck, and he says, it was worth it. At no point was Paul ever embarrassed of what he had to go through for one soul. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed of the cross. Some Christians struggle with the message of the cross. Look, in, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech huh, or of wisdom, Declare unto you, declaring unto you the testimony of God, what God thinks. For I determined not to know anything among you save, except this, I wanted everybody to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear. What? Paul was afraid they're going to stone me or they're going to reject me or they're not going to like me and throw me out. And in much trembling, you know why most podiums have a section here in the front? So you don't see my knees. You know, every time I do a funeral and I stand in front of a crowd of 100 people, most of which are unsaved, I am weak as water because I've got one chance to give them the gospel. And I'm afraid that I might say something stupid or I might not say what needs to be said. And so I beg God, I pray, and I say, Lord, let me say what you would say if you were here. Help me so that I don't say anything stupid so there's just the gospel and it's not just humor it's not just fake it's real and help me lift up the cross of Christ and what he did so that death doesn't win he keeps going there in verse uh, uh, 4 and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words and I hope you understand there's one thing you'll never get from this pulpit and that is enticing or manipulative words I'm never going to tell you the words you want to hear to try to get something out of you. Paul says, not with enticing words of man's wisdom, like a politician, but I'll preach in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was never ashamed of the cross. He was never ashamed of the Bible, by the way. People, people skim the internet to try to find problems with the Bible. They try to find contradictions just to prove you wrong, just to embarrass you. Never be embarrassed of the hard passages in your Bible. The fact that there are things in the Bible that are confusing and hard to understand proves it was written by somebody smarter than you. Amen. If I understood everything in that book, I guess I understand God, and he's not anything above me. No, when somebody shows me something that's hard to understand, I go, yep. But the things I do understand, they're the ones that get you. A guy named Billy Sunday, he was a baseball player. He got saved and he became a preacher and preaching all over the America back in the 1920s. He was instrumental in shutting down every pub and every saloon all over America during what was called Prohibition. His preaching got people saved so they didn't want to drink. But he had a, uh, a, uh, a newspaper man come up to him and says, Mr. Sunday, Mr. Sunday. Aren't you concerned about the, the Bible and the, uh, all the parts of the Bible you don't understand and they're hard to understand and, and are, 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 are confusing? 
And without even looking at him, Billy Sunday's walking somewhere and he says, it's not the things I don't understand that worry me, it's the things I do. Amen. Paul was never ashamed of the Bible. He was never ashamed of hell. That's in the Bible, you know that. Never ashamed of, of, of God exposing sin. Somebody says, look what David did. Look at him and Bathsheba. That shouldn't be in the Bible. No, I'm not ashamed of the fact that God exposes wealthy people, powerful people who abuse their power and take advantage of their power. I'm not ashamed of that because that shows how people are. He's never ashamed of how Christians are different. You know, when the world looks at you and says you're different, go, yes! Don't be ashamed. I mean, every hairstyle that changes from year to year, every, I mean, I'm wearing a, a, a fairly, I almost put on a really skinny tie this morning, <laughs> like a schoolboy's tie. I mean, when I was a kid, when, uh, uh, the ties were the size of a bib. Things change and come and go. And what happens is, all of a sudden, everybody's wearing. When I was a kid, we wore something called bell bottoms. Anybody like that? I mean, the thing, you could live inside of that dumb bottom. It, it was huge. And now it's all coming back. And everybody, I remember my dad, uh, before he left, um, I started to grow my hair long. I wouldn't let him cut my hair. And he says, uh, uh, you're going to get your hair cut. And I said, I am not going to get my hair cut. And we had a big argument. And he, says, he said, why do you want to wear your hair that way? I said, because I want to be different. And he laughed. He says, no, you want to look like your friends, which is true. Because we follow. But you know, when I got saved, there was no rule. But if I was going to sing in the choir, my pastor, I came up and I says, can I sing in the choir? He says, as soon as you get a haircut. Turned away, didn't, didn't explain, didn't join anything. That next Monday or Tuesday, I went and I sat down. My hair was down to here. And I sat down and I said, I want a haircut. And they looked how long or how short. I said, above the year. Because that's how my pastor has it. I didn't know what the Bible said. I just knew I want to look like him now. And for the first time in about six years, I felt my ears, man. And it was cold. <laughs> All my friends had long hair. All my friends had settled all of their style. All of a sudden, I was going a different way. And you know what? I got some laughter. Look at Ledbetter, man. Are you going to the Army? <laughs> I didn't get that kind of haircut, but I was not ashamed. And our kids, our, you, they get it from our parents. They get it from us that, oh, I'm embarrassed to be like Christians. We should be different. Everybody argues, how long is short? How short is long? What do we do here? What? I don't care how you argue about it. Just be different. The world looks and says, is there anybody that's different than all the other pigs and slop that's out there? And lastly, he was not ashamed definitely of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me finish this. A teenage girl was walking through her school at the end of the school day and was laughing along with several of her friends as they passed by a woman mopping the hallway the woman's hair was disheveled and a little bit messy and her clothes were very drab and she kind of smelled a little bit and the girls just passed right by her, went out of the hallway, out the hallway door, never making eye contact with the cleaner. Well, nobody knew it, but that woman was that girl's mom working two jobs because her husband left and that daughter passed right by her mom because she was embarrassed to introduce her kid. This is my mom. 
And when you sit at work and everybody's filthy mouth, everybody is just in, in, in la-la land as far as sin, and there you are quiet and not saying, this is my Savior. And as much as you mock him, as much as you make fun of him, as much as sometimes it is embarrassing to you for me to talk about him, I can't help but talk about him. He loved me. How can you be ashamed of him? One of the biggest tests for me is when I decide to go into Cork City with a couple of the guys and all right, any city, it doesn't matter, be going to Ballancolic. The biggest test is to actually get out of your comfort zone to go up to somebody who's walking and you stop and says, Do you believe in God? Would you read this? This will tell you how to know for sure when you die, you go to heaven. That's the test. Am I so embarrassed that I won't do it? I'm just going to list this and maybe it'll convict you. But here are nine reasons why people are embarrassed of the gospel. Most of the time it's because people are confused. They're unsound in the word. The reason why we have church, the reason why I get you, please keep coming week after week. Why I challenge you and, 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 and really urge you to read your Bible every day is because until you know absolute truth, you'll be embarrassed of trying to talk about stuff that you don't know. Conspiracies dominate the mind of Christians instead of the absolute truths of the Bible. Too many Christians have different ideas of what the gospel even is. Listen to Psalm 119. Don't go there. Ezra writes and he says, Let my heart be sound in thy statutes and thy word, that I be not ashamed. Let me, let me have soundness. Let me have uh, health, doctrinal health. Uh, soundness means strength and, 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 and I'm solid in the truths of the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needed not to be. I study so that I'm not embarrassed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Another reason why is because people are unsaved. They're empty. You're not going to talk about what hasn't happened to you. Ignorant. Most people don't even know the promises of God. You know, the gospel is the promise of eternal life. And a lot of people don't know the promises of God. They're impatient with God. Reason why you're too embarrassed about handing out the gospel track or talking to somebody is because you've prayed and God didn't answer you. And you get all upset at God instead of going, you know, I'm just going to trust God. I've been prayed for a wife and it's been six, it's been six weeks and there's no, God, no wife yet. That should not affect your ability to give the gospel out. How about easily offended? Oh, that's the big one today. Somebody looks at you and laughs at you, you'll swear you'll never talk again about the Lord. Don't ever do that. Pick yourself up and give it to somebody else. How about the hypocritical lies that we live? Talking to somebody and they look at you and go, I live down the road from you. Uh, I know you. I didn't think you were a Christian. Wow. That would unplug anybody, wouldn't it? How about loving the world more than God? You know, when your love for this world is so much, when you love everything about this world, you don't want to change it. You don't want to win it. That will keep you so that you're embarrassed of Christ and the gospel. Um, you're afraid of suffering? That's a big deal. What if my boss fires me? Be wise. When it's work, 
Work time. When it's break time, give the gospel, man. And I said earlier, being afraid of something, seeing something wrong, you'll say stupid things. You'll fumble through words. You'll get things backwards. Just say something. Don't be afraid. Those are reasons why people are embarrassed of the gospel. Don't do that. Warning. Mark chapter 8. Go to Mark chapter 8. Verse 38. It is dangerous to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Let's start back there in verse 35. For whosoever will save his life, you're going to what? If you hold on to your life and try to protect your life and protect your wealth and protect your image, you'll lose it all. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake. And what? Ha, ha, ha. Whatever I have to suffer for the Gospels, the same is going to save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And then Jesus says this, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. I do not want Jesus ashamed of me. Now I have more. I'm going to save this for next week. I'll have to stay tuned for next week. Why is all this important? Go back to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Why is all this important? Why, 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 why suffer trying to, why, why go through hardships for the, for, for the gospel's sake? Look in uh, Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It is important to know and understand and believe because all of these, these things and, and act on it because of the coming wrath of God. Why should anybody get saved? Because in a heartbeat they could die and go straight to hell. Because in a heartbeat we could all be gone in this world without have a gospel witness. You could be the only Bible somebody could ever read. The wrath of God is revealed. It's already visible. We already know that God is angry against all ungodliness. So I don't care whether the gospel is scorned at and mocked, but to those of us who are saved, we know it's the only hope for this world. The coming wrath of God against all ungodliness ought to motivate us, folks. I know the love of God motivates me to, to love somebody else, but I'm also knowing the wrath of God is coming. And it could be tonight that you and I are out of here. It's called the rapture. It could be tomorrow that neighbor of yours that you've known all your life could be gone and buried and in hell tonight if you don't, if you don't give them the gospel. So if you're saved, you are a debtor. You have an obligation to preach the gospel, not just me. If you're saved, you ought to be ready, ready to go. You ought to be ready. Now, when I got called to preach, back in 1980, I was only a Christian for like three months, and then we had a missions conference, and I met missionaries. I met people who were all over the world preaching the gospel, and I knew the Lord was saying, I want you to go. And at that moment, I said, all right, what do I do? My pastor said, wait. 
You need to go to Bible college. You need to get trained. You need to grow up. But I was ready. You ought to, you ought to be ready. You ought to get a fist of, fistful of tracks and be ready in case you get an opportunity to give the gospel this week. And you should never be ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of what Jesus did for you? Are you ashamed of how much he has put up with you? You say, I just can't put up with so-and-so. He puts up with you. Do you even know what the gospel is? I'll tell you about it next week. Because if I asked you, tell me what the gospel is, there are many in this room would fumble through and say, oh, love your neighbor. Oh, do good unto them that hate you. I don't even know what the gospel is. Do you even know what it is? Are you ready to believe it? I'll give you a hint. The gospel is Jesus dying on that cross for you, being buried, dead and gone to take away sin and put it away and rising again three days later, victorious over death and hell and all your sin. And he says, if you'll just trust me, I'll take you all the way to heaven. Would you believe it? And if you do believe it, are you ready to live it? Because if that is true in your life, it'll show. Let's stand, let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> With every head bowed and every eye closed, think for a second. Somebody had to give you the gospel message, had to tell you the gospel story, whether it was your parents or maybe somebody when they when they handed you a gospel track, or maybe you were invited to church and you sat there and you heard somebody pour their heart out to you with every head bowed. Please, nobody looking around. Somebody poured their heart out, told you this greatest story ever of God becoming a man so that he could die for you. And it sounds so strange. It sounds so out of this world, not, not something we would expect. It sounds foolish almost. It sounds embarrassing that Jesus would go through all of that for... For what? A world that rejects him? And yet he did it. And he did it even for just one person. He did it for just you. And if you're not saved this morning, you can be saved. You can be born again, not by being baptized or talking to the pastor or praying a big prayer. You just got to cry out from your heart and ask to, for God to save you, to forgive you, to make you his child. Would you do that? Would you believe that he did everything that's needed so that you could be forgiven and you could be made brand new? You don't need me to do anything for you. Jesus did it all. Would you ask him to save you? And dear Christian, wow, I hope you can remember that day. I hope you can look back at that day where you bowed your head you may have been a child. You may have been a teenager. You may have been somebody just two months ago and you cried out and you said, God, have mercy on me, sinner. Ask yourself, am I ashamed of what happened to me? Am I even ready to give the gospel to somebody? Do I even know how to explain it to somebody? And for the first time in my life, I realized I am a debtor. I owe it to my workmates, my schoolmates, I owe it to the people that I love and to those who hate me. I owe the gospel to them. I've been given the richest treasure ever, eternal life. How can I hold back from being a fool for Christ? 
So a lot of people in this room, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would make a decision this morning that we would agree with Paul and say, yep, I'm not like any of that, but I'm going to be. I'm now going to live as a debtor. I'm now going to be ready to go wherever you tell me and whatever to do you tell me. And I'm never going to be ashamed again of this glorious gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your hymnal. We'll go to two.